Hi, this is John Penzi, local Perth runner, uh, taking on ultras, and um, I'll call that extreme ultra running, I guess, and part two, come back the second time round, some probably six months later, um, having run now the Delirious West 200 mile race, quite an epic adventure. All right, John, welcome back to round two. We said on episode one of yours that we'd get you back to unpack this, so I'm glad we got exclusive rights. <laughs> um, you'd be a high commodity right now. So um, let's get going as to why did you want to do this? Um, well, originally I started ultra running probably four years ago, so it's been a progression over time. But for this particular race, I mean, it's on our local doorstep on the um, Bibbulmun track down south. So this is the second year of this particular race. And it's definitely one that's been on my radar, having missed out the first year. I wanted to see how the race unfolded. And uh, on that first particular race, everyone had GPS satellite trackers. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of spectators and myself, we we sat back on the couch and I guess call it the uh, dots watching. So had the fear of missing out from that first time around. So come the second year, I was definitely very keen to enter and pushing myself to the next limit of the um, ultra running, I guess. So it's, um, but I did enter the race probably quite early on, so March 19, so probably about uh, nine or 10 months, just to get my head around what I'd entered. Yeah, so yeah. I think you, when we first spoke, you pretty much, you knew that this was the big one, and it came around pretty quickly, actually, because I think we were like, oh, yeah, February, still, still plenty of time, but... Um, February came around really fast. Oh, definitely. I mean, each month uh, as you get closer to race day and all of a sudden it's um, the race is approached, you may not have done the training you wanted to have done, which we, we can go into some of the details, I guess. But um, originally, yeah, the focus was enter and worry about the training later, I guess, or as yeah. closer to race day. So it's um, the hardest part was mentally getting your head around what you'd entered yeah. and just getting used to the idea that this is a race that you need to prepare yourself for. Yeah. Let's look planning. So, you know, you do a marathon, 5K, 10K. I suppose you'd unpack backwards. So you'd go race day. Then you'd say, okay, where do I need to do a long run? Then I need to do another long run. Need to put sessions in that are specific. Where do you go here? How do you go? Uh, Race day. Let's unpack backwards. I guess to start with, I found marathon-based training, just my usual marathon training, worked really well for ultra running, whereas I didn't need to do a lot of extra training because I'm just doing the marathon uh, volume week in, week out. So last year, I was probably just shy of 7,000 kilometres for the year, which is around 130, 140 kilometres a week average. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really keen on doing extra volume because I already thought... Um, some weeks I'm doing higher, 150, 160, some weeks lower after a race. So I sort of thought if I can get through marathon season, that's going to set me up to then give a, the um, the Delirious West a good crack off the back of my marathon training. So I think in 2019 I'd probably done some six marathons during the year and quite a few ultra marathons earlier in the year around Easter. So there was there was quite a few races I did consecutive weekends and so doing that consecutive back-to-back it gives you some endurance base where you'll you're having a short recovery time and then pushing yourself to then uh, race again not necessarily trying to go for pbs week in week out just the fact that you can actually race 
consecutive weekends. So I tried periodizing the 2019 year and I did get to the point for the Perth Running Festival, I think around October, where I did PB in a 2.42, which was a substantial PB uh, for me. But some of, there was a few reasons, I guess, for that, just the consistency of my training and also probably getting race fresh and um, hitting race day in my best form, a physical peak and just not being injured during the year. So that was the base for how I wanted to approach the ultra run. Um, so basically get to November after the Perth Running Festival, after a couple of weeks recovery, and then reassess. And I had a back of my mind what sort of ultra training runs I wanted to do before um, the Delirious West 200 miler. So I guess the longer ultra running or the training runs I wanted to do, I wanted to do two overnight runs. Mm-hmm. And after Christmas, we also did five times 50 kilometres yeah. in, in a two-day period. That was to watch. That was, that, so yeah. a lot of my training does go on Strava, I guess. So probably the first one in mid-November, yeah. I ran from Kingsley down to Mandra mm. and followed the coastline. Um, so I started about one o'clock in the morning and by eight o'clock I'd reached Rockingham mm-hmm. and I did a park run. So I had about half an hour free before the, the park run started. Yeah. So that was probably my first crazy sort of run and I got quite a few kudos. So I'm not sure if, if there was a button that's like a crazy thumbs up, like just mental, I would have got quite a few hits for that one. <laughs> but do you, like, so doing that by itself though would have set you up with so much confidence, right? Because you would have, for anyone out there doing 100K or whatever, if it was close to by yourself, it's not really undulating. It's pretty much dead flat. I think, did you go along the freeway as well? Some yeah, parts and yeah. So you're getting that monotonous cycle of location that yeah. you could do 20Ks of that and it would drive you nuts. But the fact that, you know, you were doing 100 um, is also, would have prepped you a lot as well. Uh, definitely the mental part of this. So that was what I wanted to stimulate. So run for 12 hours, basically. I uh, ran about 105 kilometres. I, I did get the train home, so I yeah. <laughs> um, took the easy option out on that on that instance. But it's mentally preparing yourself. So it's not about how far you're going or how long. It's about just not giving up, keep moving, keep running, and then concentrate on like the, the hydration side, nutrition yeah. side. Um, so there was a couple of runs. So that was the first one. Mm-hmm. The second run, we had the six-inch trail marathon that was cancelled due to bushfires and extreme heat. So when that race was cancelled, there's an unofficial Mm 12-inch, which normally starts the night before the race. You start at the finish line and run to the start of the race, which normally starts at 4.30 in the morning. So you do a reverse of the race and then join the race start with everyone else. So when the race was cancelled, I decided... Um, there was another guy, Jimmy Brook, we ran, and Nicola and Ben Harris. Yep. We all, four of us, we all set off the night before. Mm-hmm. Jimmy and I ran the, the entire way, um, made it our way to the start line by about 4 a.m., yep. and then ran back to the finish line. So that was the second training run. Mm-hmm. And by that stage, doing two overnight runs, what, the second run was on the trails, yeah. which is very different to road running. Yeah. So. Um, down at dwelling up on the trails they're they're quite runnable Mm -hmm. but when you're running at night it's a very different experience yeah so i wanted to do at least one overnight trail run yeah 
Um, so the time duration as well was also important. I wanted to do 10 or 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my last training block was the five times 50 kilometres. Yeah. So <laughs> those four runs were the ones that were like the crazy ultra mental type runs. Yeah. Everything else is just my normal marathon training. Like um, I wouldn't run more than probably 25 to 30 kilometres yeah, yeah. as a single long run. Long run, yeah, yeah. But those four training runs really did prepare me for what was upcoming, I guess. Yeah. But I did come unstuck doing my five times 50 kilometres. Originally, it was going to be over five days. Uh-huh. So once a day, 50 kilometres. Yeah. And I decided, well, that's five days and 250 kilometres. The race is 350 kilometres for starters. Yeah. And I was planning to do it in two or three days, like, come race day. Yeah. So I thought, well... I need to compress my five times 50 kilometres into basically two days. Yeah. So I did 50 kilometres morning, afternoon, and then the next day repeat. Yeah. And then the third day I did a, quite, a run quite early in the morning. So mm-hmm. all five runs were done in a 47-hour period. Right. But I came unstuck because probably the following day I resumed my normal training. And so by day three... I did my knee, so I've got runner's knee, which is just an overuse and a tightness. Mm-hmm. So what I should really have done was treated that training block as a race yeah. and given myself four or five days off with no running. Yeah. So I did... Almost okay. taper for it. And then, yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. That training block, the five times 50, 250K, I've never done that before in a two-day period. Yeah. So all intensive purpose, you should really taper and recover yeah and i just didn't i just treated it as a training block yeah so but um so the, my runner's knee injury probably was about a three or four week downtime mm-hmm. so i did do some cross training but it was quite um i was limited to the amount that i could do without yeah. flaring up my my knee so i did get some treatment on it yeah did you see it as a bit of a blessing though <coughs> like now looking back in it do you think, say you flew through that five over 50, yep. you'd have probably come through it and gone, oh, next weekend, we're going to do 100 Ks, and next weekend, or the back-to-back, we'll do 50. I cut me back from that regard, so yeah, I definitely had to cut the training back, Yeah. and also reset some of my race goals. Mm-hmm. So originally, I was going to be planning some course records, and yeah. probably close to 50 hours, Yeah. Um, but after the knee injury, three or four weeks downtime, I had to reset my goals, what I was prepared, what I wanted to try and achieve out of the race. Yeah. So it probably was a blessing in disguise, given my longest run was, um, I did a 12-hour run mm-hmm. um, last year. Yeah. Where I did 142 kilometres, I think it was, at yeah. the light, <coughs> light horse run. Yeah. So having that and coming off marathon PBs, having the injury took away my top-end race speed, I guess. So I just went back to like um, a training level I guess do you think you've done heaps of ultras right so did you think in a weird way by almost hitting that roadblock you were like oh have I respected this enough like did you did you ever have that thought where you were almost ahead of it a bit too much and this was like a bit of a reality yeah definitely I mean it just put in perspective yeah how fragile we we can be yeah and so hitting a start line injury free is way more important yeah than overcooking yourself yeah. and having a um, a large training volume in your legs you just come an ultra you you get found out i guess so if you're injured there's nowhere to hide yeah. so you're better off taking it 
just that little bit easier. Yeah. And hitting the start line in um, yeah injury free, I guess. When so I know when we originally spoke, it was all about the experience, right? And yes, it always is all about the experience. But when did you have that shift in mindset that I actually want to give this a go? Like, yeah, you're a good runner anyway, so you would have featured somewhere at the pointy end. But when did you kind of make that call to go? Oh no, I really want to be at the top. That was probably probably a few months before, I guess. So before I got injured, probably off um, the back of my marathon year, I guess. Yeah. Just because um, the way I was racing, I was getting some good PBs pretty much in all distances. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, well, there's no reason I can't succeed in uh, like an ultra in the 200 miler as well. Yeah. There's no reason I shouldn't be podium finishing, yeah. I guess. So I did give myself the expectation that I'd finish highly. Mm-hmm. And even I knew even if I had, didn't have my top end speed once I'd been injured, I'd be just pushed back to somewhere in the in the normal pack I guess yeah. and it'd be a lot more competitive race so rather than finishing 10 hours in front yeah this would now push me back in line with some of the other runners and no disrespect I guess to some of the other runners because they're really experienced yeah and um, probably there would have been at least probably six to ten runners that all could have featured somewhere in, in that in, or could have finished in the top two or three yeah but until I've gone through and done the race you just don't know how everyone's going to go so. yeah oh anything could happen like you know it's and also being let's say a roadie um going onto that trail where you know you might do Darlington every year you do six inch and a couple of trail ultras if possibly they fit in but that's not your prime, like, out of training, in a training year, how many times do you go do a long run on the trail? I, I never do. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, even for Darlington, like Darlington's this yeah. weekend, if yeah. you were going to run it, mm. you almost run it off um, memory. Yeah. You know, you yeah. go, well, okay, I'm going up there, it's only a few kilometres on trail, I don't need to go and run the trail. Yeah. I'm going to stick to what I know. So, to really go and do that almost triple, quadruple on yeah. trail. Yeah. It's out of the element, you know. Like you said, okay, I did six inch because I wanted to and I had to, but yeah, still that one, one swallow didn't necessarily have to mean. Well, that was part of the challenge, I guess. So it was a big unknown, just how I could perform on ninety five percent of trail running sand, and yeah, I mean it was epic scenery, and the trail itself was really unrelenting, I guess. So yeah, I, there was always going to be that question mark. Yeah, would I get found out? And having the road running background, yeah. come the trails and extreme distance, it could have been a very, very long way to go, yeah. which sort of did happen as well. So, I mean, should we go on to the race, I guess? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so I let's, mean... Let's... So, we... <clears throat> you want to break it... How do you want to break it down? So, it's up to you. You, you Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I guess each day was slightly different, I guess, but just some background. The Ultra Series WA put on quite a few ultra mm-hmm. uh, events, and this is probably the pinnacle of the... Um, in terms of ultra running point-to-point run so it starts in Northcliffe and finishes in Albany doing the last 350 kilometres of the Bibbulmun track Mm -hmm. and so it's probably I would say there's limited chances in Australia where you do a point-to-point for such a long distance I mean logistically it would be a nightmare to put on I guess so the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes because I guess selfishly us runners we can just hit the start line everything's taken care of us for us so I think it was capped to 100 runners, like in terms of this event, just due to the, the track nature of it. And mm-hmm. um, so 
once I hit the start line, I treated it just like any other normal, like a ultra run. Mm-hmm. When I set off at my own pace, it's comfortable and feels sustainable. And I knew, I did a little bit of homework on the track itself as to just the rough, um, some rough numbers. And the, the first third of the race, mm-hmm. it's a very runnable trail. It's um, n- not much technical sections. Yeah. The second third of the race, but that's when it becomes tough. Soft sand, um, big steps, and um, you're going up and down quite a few undulations. So yeah, some hard runs in that in that middle section there. Yeah. And then the last third was a bit of combination, I guess. There's so some runnable sections and some just the normal trail. So, but by that time, it's what's runnable. You know, you could be ah oh, definitely <laughs> it could be comfortable grass, and because you've done yeah. over. 150k's already uh, you're not going to be hitting your normal average paces either, so. oh, definitely by the end everything was exaggerated in terms of <laughs> how much effort it required Yeah. so I guess the first day I ran really well for probably 22 23 hours mm-hmm. and um, I didn't really stop at all I just stopped at the aid stations hydrated, grabbed something to eat so one of my strategies was every aid station make sure you have proper food mm-hmm. So for the first day in between the aid stations, I was having gels, yeah. energy gels, like in marathons. That's what I'm used to. Yeah. But come 22, 23 hours, which was double the amount of time of my previous longest run, 12 mm-hmm. hours, the body had just given up. Yeah. So I wasn't cramping up and I wasn't in a uh, bad headspace. Just the fact my legs were just so heavy, mm. I just couldn't start running. So I did try doing some five and 10 second jogs. Yeah the legs just wouldn't get going. So basically on, by day two, I just had to um, accept the fact that I it was going to be a long hike. Yeah. And people would say at the aid stations and my support crew, John, your legs will start coming back. Um, but it just, I didn't know how long that would take. So whether it was going to take two, three days or several hours. Yeah. Because by this stage, probably been about six or seven hours. Yeah. And the legs still were just given up. <laughs> and I was thinking, I was... Um, resorted to the fact I'd have to walk the entire remaining I think it's by around 180 kilometers yeah so only about halfway into the race um and when you're at walking pace you're only probably clocking up three kilometers an hour so you're looking at 60 hours three kilometers an hour I'd already run for 22 23 hours so you're looking at 85 90 hours Mm -hmm. which is a long way but um I'd never given up the idea I was never going to dnf and withdraw because they're quite lenient uh, finish time, I guess. So I was still within the cutoff. As long as I kept moving and I wasn't cramping up, I was happy just to keep moving at my walking pace. Yeah. And it wasn't even a shuffle because I, I did I tried running and I just couldn't. Yeah. But walking was comfortable, so I could do a fast walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, at least I'm moving forward. So you do get the mindset from some of the training runs I'd done mm. that it doesn't matter how far you've got left to go. The fact that you're moving forwards, it's one step at a time. And I guess by day two, I'd almost um, given up trying to podium, I guess, because by that stage, there was a couple of runners that came past. And I did try keeping up with them, but I I couldn't last more than probably 100 metres. So I had to let them them, um, move on and I was happy just to keep walking. Yeah. So, this yeah, day two was really tough, I guess, just in terms of um, back at that walking pace. And you mentioned eating. So how did you, A, know what you're going to want? 
how did you know how it was going to sit? Because I dare say you hadn't, you know, you're used to marathon. Yeah, you didn't done a few 12 hours and things like that, but it's not stop how to veggie my sandwich like you had. <laughs> yeah. It was a very, very much taking a punch, right? Because that could just have a massive reaction. Uh, definitely a punt, but ha- I have done the couple of ultras in previous years, but yeah. only up to 100 kilometres yeah. or my 12 hours. And in those races, I did a couple of times have some food. Yeah. And it sort of sat well at, at the time anyway. So yeah. it was still a very big punt yeah. as to what I could stomach. And I was just hoping that I didn't get nauseous and I could keep food down. Yeah. But, I mean, each, each aid station, there's so much you can choose from. Yeah. I could have sat down for 20 or 30 minutes yeah. and just made my way through one of everything. You had the calories in hand <laughs> too. So, so, yeah, you've got savoury option and sweet option. So yeah. I'd have the Vegemite sandwich. So normally I wouldn't touch Vegemite, but... Yeah. In this race, I knew salt depletion. Yeah. I knew I had a feeling Vegemite sandwiches would be like my go-to food. Yeah. And also you have like your cups of soup, which yeah. are easy to digest, and jelly a couple of times, and you have ginger beer, and then there's like banana slices and um, wraps. Yeah, some and bacon and eggs. Bacon and, and eggs, <laughs> yeah. So once you, you, you're eating some of that food, yeah. your body does get used to it. So. Yeah. You're also going at a slower pace as well, so I guess that makes it easier. Stomach's not moving around as much. And so at the slower pace, so especially day two when I'm only going at three kilometres an hour, I could basically eat what I wanted, I guess. That was a good trial period during the race as to what I could eat. So the first day was basically just what I could grab and go. Mm -hmm. So my aid stations were probably two to five minutes. Yeah. And I'd just grab what I wanted, two-minute noodles, um, sandwiches, something that's easy to digest as well, and felt comfortable. So by day two, I had a bit more longer time at the aid stations, wanting to just replenish, um, stock up my my water pack, the electrolytes. And so I was was eating a little bit more substantial food. Mm -hmm. And so I guess by day, by the end of day two, I'd been walking from about, Three o'clock in the morning on, on the first night to seven o'clock in the evening. And I would figured I needed a good sleep yeah. by seven o'clock at, at night. Because the first night I had planned to run through the entire night. But come about two o'clock in the morning, my eyes were just so heavy. I'd already had a couple of cups of coffee and no-dose caffeine yeah. tablets. And my eyes and head were just so heavy, I decided I needed to have a, um, a sleep at the aid station. Yeah. So I had about 45 minutes... Um, And once I woke from that one, I was refreshed, ready to go. But come 7 o'clock the next day, I'd been walking all day. I I told my support crew, Peter Duff, I said, you go home for the night, I'm going to be setting myself up at the the sleep station and I'll probably have two or three hours sleep because I was really hoping it would reset the batteries and reset the running legs. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'm better to have a decent amount of sleep having walked for the previous uh, 14 hours yeah. with a two hour, three hour sleep, that's almost like a full re- full day recovery. Yeah. So, Was the fear also though, if you do sleep, then that could also just seize everything up? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you ask too many questions and it, yeah, you can't give it too much thought because in the race, yeah. Yeah. You, have to, you have to make decisions on the go yeah. and hope that they're the best decision. Yeah. So I was happy to give up maybe three hours yeah. on the hopes that I get some running legs back mm-hmm. rather than having, say, a one-hour sleep 
and getting two hours extra walking time. Yeah. I really didn't want to walk for 50, 60 hours, yeah. although yeah. I was happy to if I had to, just to finish. Yeah. I also did want to get my running legs back. So I took the risk, I guess, but to have extra recovery time and mm. extra sleep. And so the funny thing is in an ultra, you, you get to the point you're so tired, within five minutes and basically click your fingers and you're asleep. Yeah. So you hit that yeah. really deep sleep cycle. Yeah. And I did find within that first sleep cycle was for me it was about forty minutes to an hour twenty. Yeah. And if you wake up in that period, you wake up fully fresh, ready to go. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure so that first or that first proper sleep when it was gonna be three hours, I told the guys when they were tucking me into bed that night yeah. <laughs> that the uh, race director Bill and Richard Avery they tucked me in bed and I said, Oh, you better maybe three hours is too long make it two hours because yeah. I was really worried I would get into like a deep yeah, sleep and going. then then I would be just crashed the whole the body would have given up yeah so natural my body naturally woke within an hour 20 mm-hmm. and I thought I can either go back to sleep and get an extra half an hour because I did say two hours yeah I told the guys to wake me up at nine o'clock um but when I woke is about quarter past eight yeah but when I woke up I, I just felt alert mm. and I was like oh I don't need to go back to sleep I'm just feeling alert yeah no point trying to get now extra sleep because yeah. I'm already alert and I feel like I can get up and go yeah so I did decide then I'm better to get up and just get back out onto onto the track yeah so at that point packed everything up got my gear ready to go and I took off back on the trails it probably took me about half an hour just to get the legs moving yeah and then I slowly built up the running and I could do two, three minutes at a time, yeah. which was way better than, than doing... what you were doing the, previously, yeah. I'd only been doing five or ten seconds mm-hmm. and I only could do that a few times when the five and ten seconds and the body just, I knew, was, had given up. Yeah. But this time round, after the long time of walking, the long hour and a quarter of sleeping time, it just felt different. Yeah. So it felt like the body was ready to go. It was a new day almost. Well, not we're heading into the overnight section by that stage, yeah. <clears throat> but the body felt it's a new day, and now some of the training where I've been doing my back-to-back training sort of it came. To click in. Yeah, start, definitely started clicking there, and so the training was paying dividends. I guess yeah. the body wasn't going to give up, and the running had come back. I guess. Just to go back to, did you do anything? In terms of sleep deprivation in training? I had the intention to, actually. In, yeah. the, in the four to six week period to race day, part of my plan was do some early morning runs, yeah. like at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. But once I got injured with my knee, all my intentions had gone then. Yeah. It's like, there's no point doing early morning runs. Yeah. I'm better off to be injury free. Mm-hmm. So then my focus became, let's just try and hit the start line with your, your knee 100%. Yeah. So I didn't do any any night runs. I, yeah. Only, only other than those two runs that I'd done the the Mandra run and the the twelve inch run. Yeah. I didn't do any other early morning runs. I guess. Yeah. I had the intention, but yeah. yeah. It, it, and gear wise, so completely different, right? Yeah. There are there's no trail next percent. <laughs> um, how did you go? I suppose you had to get some trail shoes. Do you use poles? Have you ever used poles before? Yeah, good question. Where do you yeah. you know? even a hydration vest it's something that you neglect when you run around the suburbs because yeah. you go I know where my taps are I know where all this is yeah well, how do you how do you plan for it and then on the actual 
time as well. How did it all come together? I guess over the years I've done some trail running and so I've had had hydration packs. Mm-hmm. But I, the ones I had, um, I, did, I did one training run with my trail pack in, the, in the, one of the 50-kilometre runs when yeah. I ran in the middle of the day. Um, but it wasn't quite comfortable, so I did find a new hydration pack, something that sat a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. Um, but part of my training runs as well, I knew that there'd be a lot of chafing. Yeah. And say my shoulders, mm-hmm. where you're carrying the hydration pack on, just rubbing on your shoulders. One of my training runs, it did wear some of the skin away. Yeah. So I knew I had to take my shoulders and wear like a normal um, a t-shirt yeah. rather than a singlet. Single, so yeah. some of the basics like that. You have to have some, either read about other people's experiences, yeah. because if you don't know that, <laughs> some of the basics, yeah. you're going to get found out for yeah. sure. So, I mean, the fact you're carrying a hydration pack, it changes your running gaze yeah. as well. And I did have some trail shoes over the years. So, the couple of times a year I do run on the trails, probably I probably run two or three times trail running, six inch, plus a couple other trail runs, yeah. Yab- Yabaroo. Um, so, I've had some trail shoes... And they haven't had high usage of them, I guess, anyway. Yeah. So I only wear them a few times a year. Yeah. So I had three pairs of trail shoes. One um, one was a used one and then two brand new trail shoes. Yeah. So I wore my the other two just a couple of times, just get used to it. Yeah. Um, but some people had said as well, if you need like, say, it's called gaiters, I yeah, guess, yeah. like ankle protectors yeah. to stop sand going in your shoes. Yeah. So the one trail shoes I did have, I used them in the Margaret River Ultra Marathon last okay. year. It was 80 kilometres. And I got through that and I tipped my shoes upside down at the end of that run and no sand had come out and that was with no gaiters. So I knew that they fit snugly yeah. and that no sand would get in. So I knew the trail, I knew the shoes were okay. I knew the hydration pack. I found a pair that was comfortable. Yeah. And walking poles or running poles... From the Margaret River run last year, I actually won a sponsorship prize, a pair of running poles. Oh, cool. But I'd never used them was, since. <laughs> I was going to say, what were you... <laughs> so they've been in my garage yeah. for 12 months and come um, race, well, packing the car for the race day, I thought I'd better put in the running poles just in case. Yeah. I had the intention to use them as well in training, but when I got injured, I gave up trying to do all these extra training methods and approaches, but I did think I'd better chuck them in the car just in case. Yeah. So there's the basics there, I guess, in terms of what you need for ultra running. Yeah. And uh, having now gone through it, I would recommend poles. Yeah. But mainly towards the later end of the race because your legs do get quite heavy. And the poles, it's quite amazing that, that they can just get you up and going again. Yeah. And it takes that load off your legs. And whether you're going uphill or downhill, it really helps stabilise. So there's a technique... And there's a funny story because in, in the, um, the, the Delirious, probably by day three now, <clears throat> we'd come into... Um, so there's quite a few people that had overtaken me mm-hmm. from night from from the first night when I, or the second day when I was walking. I'd been overtaken probably four or five times. So I was probably in sixth or seventh place by that stage. Yeah. But coming in on that... Once my running legs came back, I started running down people on that second night. Mm-hmm. And so... There was an aid station where you hit and you have a... It's a ferry crossing, a boat crossing. Yeah. Which only leaves on the hour every hour. Oh, right. So it's on the hour sharp. Yeah. And I sort of used that because by the time I got to that ferry crossing, I was in second place because my running legs had come back and I was able to um, pull in the people in front. Mm-hmm. 
but coming into the aid station for the boat crossing, my support crew, Pete, it came out to join me to see how I was going and if yep. I was running and um, he said, oh, John, do you want to get your poles out from the car? I said, oh, I haven't really used them before. I'm not that keen. <laughs> I'm, I'm running. not the place to try something new. No, no. So there, <laughs> I was still running at this stage. Yeah. I thought, oh, I don't really want to try them out because at this stage we had about 90 kilometres left in the race. Yeah. And I thought, well, my hands are probably going to blister up. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to use upper body strength as well, which I because I hadn't used it. I was thinking, oh, maybe last 30 or 40 kilometres yeah. to use the poles. So Pete found some couple of sticks in yeah. the bush. So, so he snaps one of them to get it better size. So I'm, I've got two sticks in my hand, just trying it out as a technique, yeah. just to see if it would work, for starters, because um, we had about five kilometres before we got into the into the boat crossing. Yeah. So I thought I oh, better find out if I want to use like proper poles, because if if I'm not happy, at least I can ditch my running sticks. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm I'm running away, coming into the aid station, got my sticks. And everyone's looking at me thinking, oh, it's a bit strange. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, these have been really useful so far. So I came into the boat station and the guy in front, Guy Schwarzer. Yeah. And so people who are dot tracking at home, I think his nickname was Pooh Magoo. Yeah. So people might know that name. But um, he had some sunstroke and dehydration. So when oh, I came man. into the aid station, I thought he probably was on the, like, the previous hour's boat. Yeah. So I thought he's probably got an hour lead. But when I came in, he's in the showers and barely moving at all he's got his clothes on he's just still trying to cool his core temperature down yeah i thought oh well, that's good for me because then i'm not on a rush now to get on the boat yeah so i had probably an hour and a half because i didn't need to get the first boat out of that aid station yeah because one guy wasn't moving mm. and i did take so i would had a shower i'd put some um tape compression taping on and just got myself cleaned up and that was my first shower. And I changed my shirt a few times, but I changed my socks. And by this stage as well, my ankles had been swelling up. Yeah. Just from, um, I think it's from water uh, retention. Yeah. And everything swells up. So your ankles, your feet, your wrists, your fingers, everything swells up. And my feet were getting quite tight in the shoes. And I thought, oh, I'd need to change my shoes something bigger. And so I used my second pair of trail shoes, which was more comfortable. Yeah. Um, so I've got all got changed and then I thought oh, I've probably got at least 15 minutes mm-hmm. I can even have a 10 minute sleep now I said to Pete let me have 10 minutes if Guy's on the ferry like the 1 o'clock boat wake me up and I'll just take my 10 minutes and get me on the boat Yeah. but Guy still wasn't going on the boat so, yeah. so then I, I had extra sleeping time um so by that stage though second and third and fourth place all came into the aid station as well and so the two o'clock ferry was the one that we're all going to be on so there were four of us me elliot jen and sarah Mm -hmm. and at this stage i still wasn't convinced that i wanted my running poles yeah because i'd only been using them for a few kilometers before we came into the aid station yeah so on the boat, I take across my um my sticks (laughs) and the other guys they've all got running poles and I've got my sticks in the boat, yeah. and I'm thinking, oh, I was, we were laughing with the other guys. They're quite experienced, and they they've been using their poles for some time, I guess. Yeah. So that the poles, the sticks came with me on the boat, onto the other side. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it took me. Once the boat landed, I sort of took off using my sticks because yeah. um, that's the one th- good thing that they to get you up and running, I guess. Mm-hmm. So 
it was 10 kilometers on grass reeds and quite yep. flat and so by the time I got to this that first aid station probably about 270 kilometer mark mm-hmm. I then said to Pete all right time to ditch the sticks give me my poles yeah because by that stage they were really really um useful yeah and I was happy I just wanted my poles uh, we we had still had about 70 80 kilometers left to run yeah but I was happy just to have my my proper poles yeah knowing that I could always not ditch them on the side of the road uh-huh. but I could ditch them at a future aid station yeah. and then hand them back so there's quite a few new things like you, often they say don't try anything new on race day yeah I broke all the rules on that. So. <laughs> well, it probably is one of those races where you, you have to because... And it's the same when it comes down to food, right? Like, we've always... Well, you've been in that ultra where you just get cravings. Yeah, yeah. For weird things. You know, just, oh, I want salt. Well, I want bacon. And that's going to be the salt. That's what, you know, you get... You can't... It's not going to happen if you go out and do a 30k, 40k training run. Oh, definitely. For that ultra. But it happens... Strange things go on post 60k. So. Your, your body knows what it wants, I guess. One thing I did crave in the whole race was pancakes. Yeah. But each aid station, they hadn't set it up in time and I didn't want to wait for them to cook up the pancakes. Yeah. So I don't think I ever had pancakes in the whole run, but I did have many other things, bacon and eggs and um, pasta dishes and lentil and the soups and all, all the rest. So yeah. your body knows what it wants and it will just crave it. So peanuts and trail mixtures and lots of salt i guess yeah um so is there anything that you had that you just almost can't go near now though uh not really i guess um i did have a lot of carbs yeah during the race and so once i finished the race Mm -hmm. i just craved like normal salads and just fresh food yeah so it was a carb overload because generally I, I just have clean eating, I guess, yeah. whole foods and fresh food. Yeah. And so I definitely had my intake of carbs during that race. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it was an epic, epic race in terms of each day something was different, I guess. So day one was running, day two walking, day three back running again. And then, I mean, it was a ra- real race because once we got on the boat and there were four of us, we all wanted to win. We're all competitive. Yeah. And it's not so much about the race time and how fast you're moving. You're just you're racing everyone else at that point in time. Yeah. And everyone goes through ups and downs. And so in terms of um, fighting fatigue or how much sleep everyone's had. So over the whole... Um, so I, I did 70 hours in total for the whole race. Mm-hmm. And I had just under four hours total. But yeah. some of the other guys were having two hours sleep. Yeah. Some people... I haven't heard of many having more than four hours sleep. Yeah. And so when you're racing against someone who's had half the amount of sleep you've had, it's a different world to be running against. Yeah. So it's... It's, it's, a, it's like the human version of Formula 1 racing, in a way. Because like, yeah. it's almost, when are we going to go into the pits? When yeah. are we going to, you know, what tyres are we using? What are we doing here? And you're all kind of got the similar machine. Yeah, on road, your pedigree, I dare say, if you put everyone else in the race, you're far above and beyond. But you're almost going into other people's domain here. So then it became like this even spread. A, you're also all going a distance that most of you have never been before. Yeah. So yeah. it was almost an even playing field. You take away who you are and what pedigree you had. Oh, definitely, without a doubt. So it levels, it definitely levels a playing field there. So say the top 10 yeah. all had a chance to finish, either win or finish top three. Yeah. Just because of different people's experience 
and then how they race as well. Yeah. And so each aid station, looking after your feet, keeping on top of blisters, chafing. You can get chafing in pretty much any spot. Yeah. You can get chafing. There were people who had chafing there. I saw a yeah. few photos. <laughs> yeah. And it was, yeah, it was very, very... Some of the, the this is brutal chafing, not just yeah. like marathon cha- mar- chafing. Yeah. We yeah. get a couple of blisters, a couple of um, black toenails. Yeah, this is it's, it's um, especially when the swelling happens as well. Yeah. So, yeah, it's um, it levels the playing field for sure. Yeah. So it's the other thing as well. Though, I mean, I guess anyone can run this sort of race. You don't have to be doing like crazy training in yeah. order to do this. If you got the mental mindset mm. that you want to finish. You'll yeah. finish, yeah. It, and it's just a matter of you can do it, just what you're prepared to go through. Yeah, and that's a good thing, I guess, about the the, the length of this race goes over four and a half days for mm-hmm. the the full cutoff time. And marathons, are, I mean, most of the field finishes in say six seven hours. Mm-hmm. Everyone's finished. Yeah, this race only really started on day three, after probably what fifty hours into the race. Yeah, that's when the real race started. And so everyone's got different stories and hallucinations, and yeah. I, I didn't have any hallucinations. I was going to ask, that was my next question, <laughs> is where did the mind go? Because I yeah. heard, you know, people thinking there was a tree, was a person, and I've seen a lot of those kind of things, and yeah, okay, you didn't have hallucinations, but how far did the mind drift? It, I mean, over the years, running's been my meditation, I guess, just mm-hmm. natural meditation, yeah. um, just where you can zone out chill out your relaxing time and so in this race all those like the meditation side of things not not technically meditation but just the zoning out aspect really came into um into aspect so in the race there'd be hours and hours would just go by within like 10 20 minutes it would just go by so quick yeah other times time would just drag on and go quite slow Mm -hmm. But you're always, the scenery is always changing as well. So there's coastal path running and beaches and un, untouched uh, sand dunes and it's, you've got the giant treetops. So the, the scenery is always changing. So I guess I always looked for something that was with me at the time yeah. just to try and... that. You don't need to listen to music, I guess. I did have a MP3 player, but I never needed to bring it out. Yeah. Just the around you, there's birds, noises, or there's you're looking out for snakes there's kangaroos there's an endless supply of distractions all the time mm-hmm. and i just found i could just zone out and hours would pass yeah then you got the different times of day as well so like overnight running was completely different to day running mm-hmm. you got when the the sun's setting sun coming up in the morning it's just there's so much happening mm-hmm. that i never got bored my thoughts were always positive I never really got into a down place where I was um, thinking, why am I doing this, that sort of thing. Or yep. I was I was thinking about the finish line and the next aid station. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was trying to comp- compartmentalise mm-hmm. the race into smaller uh, manageable chunks, I guess, where yep. you're, you're not thinking about the whole race. You're yep. just thinking about your next stage mm-hmm. and thinking about how far you've got to go just to get to the next aid station. Mm-hmm. You're thinking about when was the last time you ate, mm-hmm. Because um, you're trying to um, eat just constantly the whole time. So yeah. I would carry things in between aid stations. Yeah. You're thinking about hydration, uh-huh. constantly like drinking water. And one stage I did have an overload of the electrolytes, I guess. Yeah. So I probably was having 
two thirds water, yeah. one third electrolyte. Uh -huh. And that was just a number I plugged out of my head thinking, oh, it's probably a good ratio. But yeah. in hindsight, probably, it was probably about 25 hours into the run, mm -hmm. just the, the electrolytes was just sitting on my, just on my guts. Yeah. And I was just feeling bloated. Mm -hmm. And so I went through probably seven or eight hours and I was just constantly burping. Yeah. Just, I don't know, but once I stopped the electrolytes, the belly cleared right down. Yeah. So once I stopped having the electrolytes, I was then having salt tablets, yeah. which I had. Um, I thought I'd better pack some salt tablets in case I was cramping. Mm -hmm. um, and then also the aid station having the, the salt, like the Vegemite sandwiches. Um, so there's things you learn along the way. Yeah. And you sort of have to, sometimes it can take quite a few hours to work out what's going on. Yeah. And other times slightly quicker, I guess as to what you need to do to keep yourself in the best position, I guess. Yeah. And just knowing the, the full distance. So I guess we'd come on, come off the boat. I was running well. I ditched my sticks and swapped out for the running poles. Yeah. And by that stage, we hit a undulating section. It was quite technical. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought one of the runners, Sarah, she's, a, yeah, she's very experienced, mm -hmm. knows what she's doing. She's really run, running quite well in that last section. And she'd stuck with me on that previous section, the, the flat grass reeds. Yep. But when we came into that first aid station after the boat crossing, she was like 30 seconds behind. Yeah. I thought, oh man, she's running really well. Yeah. I'm going to have to put the hammer down. So yeah. the next section is quite technical. So with my proper running poles, and I'd probably half worked out the technique, what was working with the sticks, I really made um, a push to get to build up a, um, like a lead over Sarah. Yeah. So the up and the down with the running sticks made a huge difference, or the mm -hmm. running poles. So there's normally you hold yourself back, I guess. One thing of trail running, yeah. When there's so many overgrown bushes and shrubs, you're holding yourself back because you you don't want to stack it. Yeah. And so I did stack it four times earlier in the race, and luckily they're all soft sand. Yeah. So later in the race, some of the rockier sections, I, I knew I didn't want to stack it here, so. I was really careful with the running poles, but it gives you that confidence that you can run down the hills yeah. at reasonable pace without worrying about tripping over. So quite a few times I did hit something because uh -huh. you're running at pace by that stage, but your, your running poles are just holding you forwards and stabilising you. So yeah. I could I could really attack the downhills and the uphills, both directions. Um, so it's you do get that competitive edge, I guess, mm -hmm. or that you want to stay on top of your your rivals I guess in the race yeah. and you're all pushing yourself as well as to how far you can push yourself mm -hmm. knowing that night so this was the final night now mm -hmm. and I knew was, we had about three four hours of solid running before the night before the sun went down yeah because night trail running very different to day running mm -hmm. and your pace does slow substantially when you've got your headlights and um I knew I had to get some time in the bank yeah. in that final section so I did put the hammer down and I I think I built up probably 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, but going into the into the last section, I knew I'd probably need to have one more sleep because mm -hmm. I'm trying to work out what time am I going to finish. Yeah. And by this stage, we probably had about 50, 60 kilometres left and the sun's going down. I'm thinking if I keep running reasonably good pace, I could be finishing at 2 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. But I also thought my last sleep was at lunchtime when we are at the, the boat crossing, which was 12 noon. Mm -hmm. And my sleep prior to that was 7 p.m. Of the pro on the prior day. Mm -hmm. 
So I knew roughly every 14, 15 hours I was needing a sleep. Yeah. And so I was getting to that point where I was, I was trying to work out if my pace slows too much and my finish time is um, just dropping out, yeah. that two o'clock finish time might become three or four o'clock. Yeah. And now I'm going to be battling fatigue. Yeah. So I was really wanting to build a buffer yeah. so that I knew I'd need probably 30 minutes sleep. Yeah just to get me to the finish line. Yeah. So I'm thinking for that section, when can I get her asleep in? Yeah. And so I think it was um, Shelley Beach section. Mm-hmm. Um, by that stage, <clears throat> it was about 40 minutes. And Pete had come up to me to see, he'd probably come up a kilometre before the aid station. Mm-hmm. And said, oh, I said to him, I'm not, I can't make it to the next official sleep station, which was another, probably, I think it was about another 10, 15 kilometres. Mm-hmm. I said, I need to sleep and I need to sleep now. And he said, oh, John, well, there's a mass- there's only a massage table at this sleep, or at this aid station. Mm-hmm. I, or, well, I need to sleep on the massage table. And I thought, oh, there's no chance I'm going to be sleeping <laughs> on this flatbed uh, massage table. But I thought, <laughs> I'm so tired, I'm going to try. Go to sleep on the floor, yeah. basically. Yeah. And it's so funny because within probably five, ten minutes, I was asleep on, the, on this uh, massage table. Yeah. But I did find before I try and have a sleep, I just um, have as much as I can eat yeah. in that five-minute period before I have a sleep. Because once I wake up... You want to be going. You don't want to waste more time then to eat. And, yeah. then... and also as well, you can eat something more substantial because you've got 20, 30, or say half an hour for your stomach to settle. Yeah. So I was happy. To, I think I had a couple of up and goes, like milk drinks, mm-hmm. and I did. I did. I packed about forty up and goes. I think thinking I'd be having a, every aid station, like yeah. calories in a, in a like, yeah, drink forms a lot. It, yeah, yeah. So I just couldn't stomach the milk drinks, mm-hmm. and I, my body wasn't craving it. So yeah. I never really had the dr- the up and goes. Yeah. Other than the sleep stations, so if I knew I was going to have a sleep, I'd have an up and go. So yeah. I probably only had four, four or five in duration mm-hmm. but it was the body that said i wanted i needed to have that milk because it did it sat comfortably mm-hmm. just that i needed some time for it to be absorbed yeah and so yeah you, you're gorging yourself with some food in that five minutes knowing that you just need to eat what you can and then you want your sleep because the sleep's really important yeah so i, I slept i had a couple of ear, ear plugs as well mm-hmm. so i put that in it deafened like just the the ambient sounds yeah. And I'd find within five minutes I was at that. Out. I was out. Yeah. But quite a few other race, um, competitors, they all had like dirt naps, mm-hmm. where they'd probably done it before, but they would just pick out a point on the course. Yeah. Patch of sand or a bit of a exposed um, clearway. They'd yeah. just sleep on the on the track. Whereas I'd already seen quite a few snakes in, on days <laughs> one and two, and overnight as well. So I was not wanting to sleep on the dirt yeah. so that was my one thing I had to sleep at the aid stations <laughs> yeah oh for sure I could imagine mate like yeah it would just be that would also play in your mind because you're not thinking straight so yeah you would think you're bloody hallucinating if it was a snake but yeah yeah but the, so the people having those five and ten minute dirt naps mm-hmm. I think they're the ones that had a lot of hallucinations yeah because they probably didn't get that full um, sleep cycle yeah. whereas I was having 45 minutes to an hour 10 or an hour 15 mm-hmm. I never had 5 and 10 minute sleeps so yeah. I, I never felt I was like in a downward fatigue spiral uh-huh. um, I felt like each time I woke up I was fresh ready to go Yeah. 
Whereas some of these other people, and maybe I'll try that in the next ultra, yeah. doing these five and ten minute sleeps. Yeah. Because if when you, you are racing the clock, I guess, yeah. you want to have a short amount of time, mm-hmm. but you want to be refreshed, ready to go. So there's that balance. Do you take longer sleep times or shorter sleep times? Because you're also not guaranteed you will fall asleep. Yeah. So it's that battle. And I, I, I didn't know. I had to go with the flow and just work out what worked for me mm-hmm. and one if I actually fell asleep. Yeah. So there, I guess there's some um, strategies that can help people fall asleep. Yeah. So just for example, putting in those um, earbuds. Yeah. Um, being at the point where you actually feel like you can sleep. Mm-hmm. Don't just, if you're not sleepy, probably don't sleep. Yeah. So there's a lot of tips. I've, I learned so much in this race yeah. that I'll use for future races. Mm-hmm. Until you've been there and done it, you just don't know what's going to work. Yeah, for sure. So there was another, there was another point, I guess, once I'd had my sleep, the second place Sarah, she was coming into that aid station. Mm-hmm. Probably she was five minutes away. Yeah. So I was heading out of the aid station. She was coming in. Mm-hmm. And I think she probably had about 20 or 25 minutes. Yeah. So she was having less time, sleep time. Mm-hmm. But I was happy, refreshed, and I knew I could run to the finish line no problems now because it, yeah. it was probably about 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. But coming in, so I made it to the next, the last sleep station was called Cozy Corner. Yeah. And after Cozy Corner, we went on to the last beach section. Mm-hmm. I think it was called Parry's Beach. Mm-hmm. And I hit this rock face on the beach section and the waves are crashing in at the bottom and there's like a vertical cliff um, section mm-hmm. and I thought, surely we don't have to scale this this cliff face. Mm-hmm. The waves are crashing in. It's like, well, we can't walk around and detour past the rocks because yeah. the water's... There's no way you can swim through it. Yeah. I mean, it was quite rough, the, right, the waves, so you probably could swim. Yeah. But I was, there was no way I was going to swim through it because you'd definitely be, you, your whole body would yeah. be immersed in it. It wasn't like knee height or anything. Yeah. And so I had to backtrack because I thought maybe I missed miss the exit. Um, so I backtracked probably 100, 200 metres and I couldn't yeah. see any exit. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I retraced back to the cliff face. I took out my second flashlight or headlamp mm-hmm. with brand new batteries and I'm standing there trying to see if I can see any, um, any path that you could climb on. Mm-hmm. And with my brand new headlamp, there was some like uh, pink flagging tape. And so I knew straight away then I missed it the first time around. But the second time gave me, I knew that I had to go on that rock face. So then I I made my way to the first tape and then I could see the path. But you you hit a point. So in the race, I'm sure other people did where you just, you can go around in circles Mm. because you're not confident you're one, you're on the track Mm -hmm. or you've missed a turn. And so... There's all these unknowns until you're in the race. What are you going to do? You, yeah. So I, I sort of, I didn't quite panic. Yeah. But you just have to clear your head, I guess, get a refocus mm-hmm. and then try and rationalise where you're at yeah. and just try and do things rationally, which is hard when you're yeah. 60 hours into the run by this stage. <laughs> yeah, so for sure. you're not thinking straight. So this, this cliff face, once I was happy that I'd taken the right turn, it made things a lot easier from that point. But I did hear the prior year, someone did um, scale the whole cliff face. Oh, I think please. Candace did. So she actually, I don't think there was taping in the first year. Yeah. So Candace, um, what I'd heard, she'd scaled, it was quite high, it was probably about 20, 30 metres higher. She scaled it all the way to the top and then made her way onto the other side and then came back down. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of stories that what people go to 
um, it's yeah, it's it's amazing what your body will push through and yeah. what you'll try, knowing where you are if you if you're lost in the race. And so by this stage, once I'd come out on the other side, I once I got to the next aid station, I heard Sarah had also taken well, she'd taken a wrong turn somewhere else, yeah, and she lost probably another half an hour. So I think she was okay at the cliff face, but she did go, she did do an out and back. So by this stage, I probably had an hour, I was probably about an hour up on, on second place. Mm-hmm. So I was a lot more confident that I just had to stay on the path, not get lost. Yeah. And then by this stage, probably about another thirty kilometres left to go. So it's still quite a long time when you're out there on the trails, and it's just a never-ending the the um the undulations and the the um the trails are just changing. The, the Bibbulmun track, yeah, I, I got to the end and I said. That's an unrelenting course. It never gives up. Mm-hmm. It's brutal. Uh, I mean, what you go through, it's just pushing yourself to the extreme. Yeah. I mean, you can walk a lot of it as well. So it's what you're prepared to push yourself through, and how you how you're feeling. But you also need to set yourself up for success, I guess. Yeah. During the race, look after your body, um, knowing what you have to go through to give yourself the best possible chance. Yeah. To finish in the best possible shape. Yeah. It, yeah, it's just yeah, it was an <laughs> epic race. Forgiving in a way. Um, let's talk your biggest learning. So, your two biggest learnings, and why? From the race itself. Yeah. So I guess the first learning would be, the body will recover. Mm-hmm. It just a matter of how much time it takes. Yeah. And so for me, it took a good fifteen hours, mm-hmm. which I would I I thought my body had given up for the rest of the race yeah and i was resented to that i'd have to walk the remaining time mm-hmm. so that was the biggest learning that the body can recover mm-hmm. i stayed positive the whole time so i never got into a negative mindset i guess that i was always positive no matter what happened that yeah. i'd always be i didn't want to put myself not down but you know, once you get into a downward spiral uh-huh. especially i ran a lot of it solo as well so most of the time at the pointy end i guess we're each running our own race. We're not mm-hmm. in the back of the... Well, not back of the pack, but yeah. we're not just taking it easy on ourselves yeah. and running in for... It's still enjoyment, yeah. but we want to get the best out of ourselves and push mm-hmm. ourselves and go through those ups and downs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, first one was um, that recovery time, I guess, that the body will adapt yeah. and will recover. So, And probably the second learning as well was would definitely be the lack of sleep. Yeah. So that was a real unknown how much sleep I'd need because I I I'd planned to run in two nights and not mm-hmm. and finish before the third night. Yeah. But going in I, so I finished on the last well for, it was on the third day, five o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. So a day and a half before the official cutoff. Yeah. Um but what you can push through is quite amazing I guess that I was thinking I'd need a lot more sleeping time than what I would. Yeah. And I thought I'd be constantly battling fatigue hour after hour, mm-hmm. whereas I had it, I think I had it just right because that forty-five minute to an hour, fifteen or whatever, just really refreshed me, ready to go. Yeah. And so I'd be right to go for the next fifteen hours, sort of thing. So I was I was never in a constant state of battling fatigue. Yeah. When I thought, ah, oh, it's I'll be needing like lots of coffees and caffeine tablets and energy drinks and. Um, so those two things there, it's the body doesn't give up yeah. or doesn't have to give up. 
and you can push yourself through yeah. on very, very little sleep to get to the finish. Yeah. So they're, they're the two main outcomes for yeah. me, or two learnings, I guess. And what do you take with you into everyday life? Like, I, like any kind of running, you know, it, for me, it's an escape. If you go out at lunchtime, you no one can really interrupt you there. You go out early morning, it gets your day started, you're on a high. Yep. You're sitting at your desk, it's one of those days, you're sitting there at six, seven o'clock at night and you're gone. Physically, I've been in a worse place. What did you get from this that you take into everyday life? Um, I guess the first thing was probably the amount of training is definitely uh, less than what most people think you need mm-hmm. to do this sort of distance. Mm-hmm. So just by training consistently, week in, week out, it gives you a huge endurance base. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, I did think I wanted to have like, say, 12 months of perfect training, mm-hmm. but having my injury four weeks out really resets yeah. what you actually can do on limited training volume. Mm-hmm. So for me, I guess, one, if your mindset, you want to do something, you'll do it. You'll find a way Mm -hmm. to do it. So in everyday life, I guess, if there's something that you've been working towards, Mm -hmm. one, be positive in your mindset, Mm -hmm. you can do it. Mm -hmm. If you keep telling yourself, don't let negative thoughts consume you. Because I I mean, it can be, it could be anything really, but it's that whole approach. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing as well is having a structure in place. Yeah. And have a, it's all good to have a plan as well. But if the plan doesn't tick all the boxes, doesn't mean it's game over yeah. and to give up. It just means you need to readjust what your, your maybe what your, um, what your plan is, your, your strategy, mm-hmm. and revise your expectations. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're not, you're not, not going to win a race, yeah. but you could still finish top five or top ten, or in everyday life as well. So... You're doing a lot of overtime, for example. You, you Maybe all that overtime is working towards a goal. Mm-hmm. And if you can re- revise what your goals are, you might find, well, do I really need that promotion, for example? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it can delay it for a year or two. Mm-hmm. So it's about revising your expectations, yeah. being something that's more work-life balance as well. Yeah. And running... And ultra running really is the underlying, it keeps you going, I guess. Yeah. So it's, it gives you a whole new approach to life, mm-hmm. what, you're, what you're prepared to go through. Yeah. Life isn't a rush. Mm-hmm. We don't have to achieve everything in the next six or 12 months. And ultra running really resets your baseline as well. Mm-hmm. It's, I guess it's called ultra pace, uh, ultra speed. Yeah. Everything's slower. <laughs> so, yeah. so the presentations, I think they went for about four hours yeah. <laughs> at the end of the race. I mean, everyone got individually recognised, mm-hmm. got their individual finishers medal, mm-hmm. the plugger award, everyone gets their... Um, so if the one of this thing is you get a custom plug, or say a left plugger, mm-hmm. a thong. If you do the race the second time, you get your second thong. Yeah. But it's got a nice commemorative, like it's been engraved. Yeah. And every single person in the race who finished, Sean, the race director, brought them up, shook their hand, gave them their moment in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. So, so in this, in ultra running, everyone's a winner. Yeah. So for me, although I did win the race and it yeah. was a great achievement and accomplishment for me personally, the last place finisher has more, um, every right to be in the limelight as me. Yeah. 
and it just makes you reassess just everyone's a winner, I guess. The importance of it, yeah. The importance, and there's no rush. Mm -hmm. And a race like this that goes for four and a half days, if you finish in two days, three days, four days, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And life is very much like that as well. So why why we don't need to rush everyday life. Mm -hmm. Or otherwise, I, I know for me as well, come retirement, your life has just gone by in a flash. Yeah. And you haven't stepped back, smelt the roses, I guess, what's mm -hmm. in front of you every day. Yeah. And I, there's things that you can take for everyone else as well and that appreciation yeah. for life in general. And this was one aspect that gave me that appreciation to step back and just put everything in perspective. Cool. Yeah. Let's, so 2020, let's finish off with where you want to see this go. So you started up here, you know, your mileage wise, you shut yep. the lights out. Now it's like anything. If you do, your, let's say your biggest race of the year at the start of the year, what do you do now? Do you take some time out? Do you go, okay, let's hit the marathon. That's my goal. Um, because you're traditionally, you almost, you race almost every local race. So yep. let's tick them off that you're going to do. But is there a big one that you want to set yourself for? Well, the next couple of months, I mean, I'm not really targeting PBs. I yeah. mean, I enjoy racing or running. Mm. And I do need some downtime, but I think I just have to go with the flow week in, week out. So... Yeah. We're into week two now, and I have resumed slow running, but I also um, know there's still a long year to go ahead, mm -hmm. and so I'm not really, I'm I'm still planning to run. So Bunbury marathons in probably four or five weeks time, mm -hmm. but it's not a target race. I'll be happy just to finish it, mm -hmm. and having done the ultra run under three hours though. Oh uh, <laughs> yeah, well that's I mean, <laughs> yeah. so I mean that's what you self impose as well, I guess, yeah. as to what goals you want from it. And I won't really know how I'll run at Bunbury until closer to the to the day, how yeah. I've recovered. But for me, running a sub three marathon is doable mm -hmm. if if my training's consistent. Yeah. Running a sub two forty marathon is really my like a like short term six to twelve month goal. Yeah. And that will take some time to get to that stage yeah. to be in a two forty marathon shape. shape yeah. So after the two forty two last year. I know I can get close to breaking 240, mm -hmm. but it's not going to be a one or two month turnaround. Yeah. It's probably a five or six month turnaround from now. Yeah. So going into March now, we're looking at September, October, yeah. six month, five, six months from now. Yeah. But I'm not thinking of five, six months from now. I just need to go get build back up like a normal training regime. Mm -hmm. um, Regime week in week out, yeah. but a slow slower build up, I guess. So, one, I don't want to get injured. Yeah. Um, and I know the speed will come back. Mm -hmm. I'm better just to see it through to be sustainable, I guess. Yeah. Knowing that my best is still yet to come. Yeah. Well, I hope anyway. So, there I'll still be ticking the boxes, I guess. So there's a few. I'm not going to do Darlington this weekend. Okay. Because that's that's this coming uh, yeah. weekend. But I think the following weekend there's the Twilight Half Marathon. Yes, yeah. So I'll happy, I'm happy to run, run that because I've mm -hmm. already entered that. But it won't be for like a PB attempt. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you um, enter races, mm -hmm. you enter them for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Some of it is to enjoy the run yeah. and just run as well as you can on that particular day. But you know you're not in PB shape, yeah. And you're not periodizing yourself as well. 
So I'm happy to do races yep. knowing that they're not going to be PB attempts. Correct, yeah. So I still want to look after myself and give myself recovery time. and But it's also part of the, the training aspect as well where mm-hmm. I, I do get the best out of myself from racing quite frequently. Yeah. And so I don't want to break up what's worked in the past for me and yep. having breakthrough 2019 the racing aspect is basically my um, interval and my my paced mm-hmm. efforts and so I know it works for me and I want to continue doing that yeah so I'll be periodizing the next six months I guess mm-hmm. and trying to progress each week just that little bit incremental steps mm-hmm. knowing that in a say four to six month period mm-hmm. that's when I could be back in a PB shape I guess yeah. so it's yeah, yeah, you have to appreciate what you've done, mm-hmm. and I'm still letting the 200 miler sink in as well. So it's yeah. the achievement from doing what I did. Well, I didn't break a course record, but it, just the whole my the self achievement. Mm-hmm. I need to let that sink in as well, yeah. and just appreciate sure. the extent of what it was. And I would encourage other people as well to continue pushing themselves as, as well. That doesn't mean you do to go out and do the next 200 miler. Yeah. But having that, I think I said last time about the journey aspect as well. So thinking of the next five or 10 years mm-hmm. where you may like to end up or to at least have done, mm-hmm. I guess. So with it, I've done that myself. Yeah. And my journey is still progressing. So it's, it's part of the excitement as well that it's, um, I haven't ticked all the boxes, I guess. It's yeah. still... There's still unknowns. I'm still learning new things, so it's, yeah, it's very um, good place to be, I guess, cool. on the way forwards. Well, thanks so much, mate. Um, I know we just kind of scratched the surface, but it's good to kind of get you back in just to ask a few questions. Yeah, and... I definitely appreciate giving oh, yeah. the recap and um, yeah. just hopefully that excitement and. And what, what the... will I know that you're going to do an actual formal race report? So what we'll do is we'll tag a link if you've got one. Okay. Notes yeah, sure. There. Yeah, um, people can go on and have a read and oh there's a there's a detailed report which is just about finished so it's um yeah a lot of what i've spoken about today and for yeah. people who may want to see yeah, for the sure. ins and outs and i also some of my like the gear that i've used and what mm-hmm. worked and what didn't just some of that learning so i want to share that with everyone as well yeah. and everyone will pick up different things probably sale john that's never going to work for me. So. <laughs> well, how do you know unless you try? Exactly. Cool. Thanks nice. so much. Thanks, Owen. Yeah. Appreciate it. Great. Well, thanks so much, John, once again, for giving exclusive rights to the Stimulate Run podcast to share your Delirious West recap with everybody out there. I'm sure everybody thoroughly enjoyed your recap, and especially those who did the race with you, it took them back to um, that time when they also completed it. Congratulations all to every other finisher. If you want to know more about John's race in depth, you can jump on his Strava and he actually uploaded the full file so you can look at every split for across the race. Uh, You'll also share a link with me to his full in-depth race report where in the report I've seen a a sneak preview and he'll tell you exactly how many Vegemite sandwiches and bacon egg rolls he had along with how many changes of shirts. So we'll put that in the show notes in time to come. Thanks again, John, and hope everybody enjoyed the listen.